Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15. Amanda, could you help Colin find his place? It's the first book in the Bible. Genesis 15:1 After this the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision Do not be afraid Abram I'm your shield your very great reward But Abram said O sovereign Lord what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You've not given me children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, The man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. God took him outside and says, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this, his most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to be upon every mind in this place, that their perception of what I say will be received, understood, applied as you intend. And upon my tongue that I'll be cleansed, that I might be your transparent instrument to say everything you want said, nothing you don't want said. I pray that I will be so clear, so simple, that if there's someone here who's never been in church in their life, they'll be able to get what I'm saying, and, and maybe this could be their defining moment. And so may this be a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Defining moment, that's what I'm hoping for every time I preach this, uh, this winter and spring, I've decided that uh, that will be the series, Defining Moments, and we'll look at different people in the Old Testament and examine certain details in their lives. Now, what is a defining moment? Well, it could be positive, it could be negative, but it's never neutral. You remember the day. You can never forget it. It is the point from which never were things to be the same again. Many of you can remember where you were when you heard September 11th, 2001, that the towers in New York City fell by two airlines suddenly. 
I'll never forget where I was. I'd just come in from fishing in the Florida Keys and I walked into this restaurant and the TV was blaring and big words, attack on America. And I, I thought, this is sci-fi. And I thought, well, no, it couldn't be at this time of the day. And I, and I kept, this was CNN. And when it hit me, I thought right then, the world will never be the same again. I knew who had done it. And some of my friends said, RT, you shouldn't say that. We wrote a book, The Day the World Changed, based upon what we call in America 9-11, because they start with the September is the 9th and 11th. Over here, you do it the other way around. But 11th of September, uh, I wrote the book, The Day the World Changed, and some of my friends chided me. I said, that's a bit hasty. You don't know. I said, it is the day the world changed. Now everybody agrees. Everybody agrees. Defining moment. Or take D-Day, June 6, 1944. Invasion of Normandy, turning point in World War II that led to the liberation of France and the eventual end of World War II. Most of us have a defining moment in our lives, milestones, or take the church generally, Pentecost, or take Martin Luther's 95 Theses, October 31st, 1517, defining moment in church history. You, each of you, have probably had at least one defining moment, turning point, when you came to the crossroads, it may have been the day that gave you purpose, reason for living, sometimes called a moment of truth, truth about yourself, the day you were given identity. Sink or swim time, that's what a defining moment is. A moment that determines subsequent related occurrences. The point at which a situation is clearly seen to start or change. Maybe it's when you choose between right and wrong. Or choose between right and right, which is not always easy. It may have been a tragedy, a turning point owing to someone's death. A defining moment is often unexpected, unsought. You may not realize its importance until some time later. You look back and think, ooh, that was my defining moment. For some, it can come early in life. Take the child Samuel, hearing God speak to him. Or David, when he was a teenager, fighting Goliath. For Abraham, it was when he was 85 years old. That's older than anybody here. I reckon I'm the oldest person here. Well, we won't put anybody on the spot. Anybody want to volunteer? Who's older than I? Anybody here 80? Abraham was 85. That's interesting. You may feel that you've lived your life and there's not much more. God isn't finished with you yet. And it could be that you are about to have a moment 
that will eclipse all others in your life. Well, now, here's what it was for Abraham. Um, He was given a promise, and it would change his life. And uh, I want you to think about your defining moment. Maybe you've had more than one, as I said. Maybe it was your conversion. Maybe it was your marriage. Could it have been the day you came to terms that you're not going to get married? That can be a defining moment. Maybe it was a tragedy, a childhood experience. You had a bad teacher, peer pressure. And speaking of bad teachers, I, I told this in the first service, and I hadn't planned to tell this. You may not believe this, and when I tell this to people, I do it once in a while, they don't believe me. I struggle to read. I struggle to read. I have to make myself read. It goes back to when I was six years old, the most horrible first grade teacher. Well, I'll tell you what. I remember I was six years old, and the words were, see Alice run. And for some reason, I said, see run Alice, and my teacher behind me, came and shook my shoulders just like that because I got that wrong. And I tried to say it again, and I got it wrong again, and she'd shake my shoulders. That happened three times. I don't think I was ever the same after that. I was afraid to read. So it was kind of a negative defining moment. It's not that huge. I've managed to get through it over the years, but you've no idea how hard it is for me on that area. Or... Moving from one place to another, graduation, passing an exam, you discovered what people were saying about you. Sometimes uh, when you're, say, eight years old, and someone says something to you, and they make fun of you, your face, your mannerisms, if an older person said it, it may not matter, but someone your age says it. You are shaken. Or it may be the outcome of a physical exam, a doctor's diagnosis. You come to terms with who you are. One of my defining moments when I was 19 years old, I realized that God had called me to preach, to preach the gospel. And uh, I had heard of many people who had a call to preach. And they're rather spectacular. I was brought up to believe, don't ever think of going into the ministry unless you know for sure that God has called you. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, this is Maya. I told you about her. Hi, Maya. Sorry about that. You'll have to forgive me. I think the most extraordinary convert in my 25 years in London was Maya. won't tell you more, but uh, glad to see you. Yeah, well, Charles Spurgeon used to say, if you can do anything else, do it. 
And, and so I was afraid of launching out into claiming I was called to preach unless I knew I was called. And my closest friend said he heard an audible voice that said, Dale, will you preach? And he said, yes, Lord. So I was waiting for an audible voice. And I was, something unusual. And uh, uh, there was this farmer in Kentucky that saw the clouds, and they were shaped in such a way that it looked like P-C. And he said, yes, Lord, I will preach Christ. And that was his call to preach. And people who heard him say, yeah, that was PC all right, and it was God, but it meant plow corn. <laughs> Boy, aren't you glad you came here today? This is really edifying. Okay. You may wonder what happened. Well, uh, I was waiting for Michael the archangel to come down and tell me, but a Scotsman from near Glasgow John Sutherland Logan visited our campus in Nashville, and when I heard him preach, I thought, that's the greatest preaching I've ever heard in my life. And I wanted to get as near to him as I could, and he let me have breakfast with him a time or two. And, and the last day before I was to leave, he was going on someplace else. I said, Dr. Logan, would you help me to know whether I'm called to preach? And he said, you are. Well, I said, I don't think I made it clear. I need to know whether I'm called to preach. He said, you are. Well, how do you know I am? He said, you are. Guess what? I believed him. I knew he was right, and it was such a disappointment, I wanted a vision. I wanted Michael the archangel. But I never doubted it from that hour to this. It was a defining moment. So sometimes a defining moment can be very unspectacular. Well, Abraham was one of the great men of the Old Testament, and he had several defining moments. For example, in chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord says, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. And there I will make your name great. And that, no doubt, was a defining moment. Or the event that I've just read about in Genesis 15, to which I will return in a few minutes, uh, he had another defining moment, and that's when uh, he slept with Hagar, Sarah's uh, mistress, because the promise wasn't being fulfilled, and they wanted to make good the promise. And uh, so Abraham thought that Sarah would be the mother of his child, and nothing was happening, so he slept with Hagar. In those days, strange as it may seem to us, that was not regarded as immoral. And uh, so Ishmael was born, and that was a defining moment. But then some years later, God said to Abraham, this is 13 years later, by the way, because for the next 13 years, Abraham sincerely thought that Ishmael was the promised son. And he adjusted to that. It wasn't what he was hoping for, but he wanted to be from Sarah. 
But she now was too old to have children. So he, he adjusted and he loved Ishmael. He loved Ishmael. And he grew up for 13 years. He assumed Ishmael was it. And would you believe one day God said, wrong. Sarah will conceive. Ishmael's not it. You would have thought Abraham would be thrilled if you had told Abraham 20 years before, can you imagine any circumstance that if Sarah is pregnant with your son that you'd be unhappy? He would have said you're out of mind, out of your mind. That would be the greatest thing I could imagine for Sarah to be the mother of my son. Now it's happening. God says, Sarah will conceive. And Abraham said, please, no, 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 no. Don't make me go through that. Let it be Ishmael. Genesis 17. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Sorry. Isaac is coming. And that was the defining moment. And then, after Isaac had grown up to be a little boy, one day God said, I want you to take your only son Isaac and sacrifice him to a place that I will tell you about. Do you know that Abraham didn't argue back? By this time, he knew the voice of God. He knew he wasn't being deceived. And it didn't make sense. And that's the interesting thing about God He leads us in a way that makes no sense at the time. He will require things of you that make no sense at the time. Abraham didn't understand it. He just assumed, well, I'll offer my son and God will raise him from the dead. Because he knew that his seed would be as the stars in the heaven. The truth is, as Abraham now was ready, he had Little Isaac bound ropes, laying over wood that he's going to strike a a fire to in just a few minutes. And he has a knife, and he's coming down. And just as he brings the knife down, the angel holds his arm. He says, stop. And God says, now I know how much you love me. Sometimes God requires things of you that make no sense But it's a test, a test to see how important he is to you. Well, the interesting thing is that Abraham now, we're back in chapter 15, this is my text, was a wealthy man but discouraged. And you know why he was discouraged? Because he couldn't have children. You would say, well, that's not a problem. But it was a problem to Abraham. He said, you've given me all this wealth, and I've got no children. What am I supposed to do? Leave it to Eliezer, my servant? And it was at that moment, Abraham is told to go out of his tent, count the stars, dark night, bright stars, and there are dozens and dozens and dozens, and of course, we now know there are millions and billions and billions And God said, so will your seed be. Now, Abraham might have said, God, don't tease me like that. Do you expect me to believe? 
that my seed will be as the stars in the heaven? You expect me to believe that? Here I am, 85 years old. Sarah's 75. You want me to believe that? He didn't say that, though. We're told he just believed it. And God said, good. For that, I count you righteous. And that was the defining moment for what is arguably the greatest teaching in the Bible. It's called justification by faith alone. It's what Martin Luther rediscovered in the 16th century. Now, that became the Apostle Paul's Exhibit A in Romans 3 and 4 for the teaching of justification by faith alone. Let me explain that. I accept that most of you know what that teaching is. But I'll tell you something. The greatest danger the church faces today is this teaching will pass behind a cloud. There are theologians, there are prominent Christians who are now saying things that are right against this historic teaching. Don't want to say a lot about that, but it's so distressing. And I worry about the future of British Christianity when I see some influential people now being listened to. Well, what is the teaching of justification by faith? Well, let me start at the ABCs. There may be someone here, you've never had this question put to you. Here's the question. Do you know for sure if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? Do you? And if you were to stand before God, you will. And he were to ask you, he might. Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? I want you to think about it. Suppose you're standing before God. It's the real thing. And he says, why should I let you into my heaven? To give the wrong answer, I'm sorry, it means you go to hell, not to heaven. And I don't know if anybody told you this, but once we die, it's one of two destinies. It's heaven or hell. This is the historic Christian faith. It's not referred to often these days. One reason it's not referred to too often is that the church is afraid they'll scare off people. And people won't come. Well, they're not coming anyway. What good is it doing not to preach it? This is the historic Christian faith. It's heaven or hell. And by the way, eternity lasts a long time. And now you're standing before God. He says to you, why should I let you in? And you've got to come up, oh dear. One answer will do. Give the wrong answer. You have to go where you don't want to go. Is it possible someone here is saying, I've done my best? Is there someone who said, well, I've been baptized? You say, well, I'm brought up in a Christian home. All that means is you had a head start. You say, well, I've kept the Ten Commandments. Well, you're a liar for one thing. Oh, I've lived by the Sermon on the Mount. You're a bigger liar. 
And as for that person who says, but R.T., I've done my best. You say, isn't that good enough? It isn't. And here's why. Your best will never come up to the standard that God requires to get in heaven. You see, in order to get into heaven, it means you've got to be perfect in thought, word, deed. 60 seconds a minute, 60 minutes an hour, 24 hours a day, every day of your life. That means one sin and you're out. If you ever once have a time of jealousy, you're finished. Lust, that's a sin. You lie, that's a sin. You steal, that's a sin. One sin, you're out. You say, well, how can anybody get in? Ah, that's my point. You do your best, you still come short. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. But here's what happened. 2,000 years ago, God sent his son into the world, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, under the law. He kept the law, and as a baby, his parents kept the law for him. He was circumcised the eighth day according to the law. And all those things, Jesus was brought up, and then when he becomes of age, he submits to the law. He never sins in thought, word, or deed, 60 seconds a minute, 24 hours a day, every day of his life. He was even baptized for you. Do you ever wonder why you don't have to be baptized to get to heaven? Jesus was baptized for you. Everything required of you, Jesus did. He kept the law for you. He was a holy man for you. He did it all. And when he died on the cross, the blood that he shed cried out for justice. And the blood of Jesus satisfied the justice of God. So, the ancient story of Abraham, the Apostle Paul uses, in the same way that Abraham might have said, when God said to him, count the stars, so will your seed be, Abraham might have said, God, you don't expect me to believe that, do you? I'm 85, she's 75, we're too old to have children. Don't tease me. He could have said that, and people would, could be sympathetic. But you know what? He believed it. He believed it. And that is when God declared him righteous. Paul uses that in the understanding of the gospel so that we are now told that you go to heaven because Jesus died for you. Let me tell you how to know if you've ever really heard the gospel. Here's your hint. When it was too good to be true, that's when you heard it. Until it was too good to be true, you haven't heard it yet. Do you know what I would say to God if he said to me, RT, why should I let you into heaven? Two words. Jesus died. He would say, that's what I want to hear. Come in. Really? Jesus died? Hmm. What came to your mind a while ago? Were you thinking, well, I've done this, I've done that? Did you know the Christian faith is the only religion in the world that enables you to get to heaven on the basis of what someone else has done for you? 
That's why Jesus died. He lived a perfect life. His obedient death and the sacrificial death all put to your credit. You're, you can't be lost on the condition that when this gospel is put to you, you don't say, do you expect me to believe that in the 21st century? Does anybody believe that anymore? And you can say, that's ridiculous. But I'm telling you now, it's the same gospel. And the moment you say, Jesus died for me, I put all of my eggs into one basket. Do you know the hymn? Sing it with me if you know it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. You say, that is too good to be true. When, it, when, when that thought crosses your mind, that's when you heard it. If you were told the way to get to heaven, you got to do this, you got to do that, and this, commit and keep these rules, all, that's not good news. But when you hear it and you think, that's too good to be true. Now, that's the teaching. Now, let me get a bit heavy for a moment. Three causes of justification by faith. First, the meritorious cause, the death of Jesus Christ. The instrumental cause, your faith in the blood of Jesus. But third, the effectual cause. That's what enabled you to believe. You couldn't have done it on your own strength. And so it turns out God has done everything for you. <laughs> he puts you in the path of hearing the gospel. The Holy Spirit applied it. You believed it. Because Jesus died for you. And so when you get to heaven, you'll be so aware you've done nothing to deserve it. Kind of humbling. There are those who don't want this. They say, I want to feel like I've done something. Well, I'm just going to tell you right now, this is what is offensive about the gospel. People can't bear the thought that God's done it all for you. You ever go to a party or some kind of social gathering and you thought it was going to be prestigious people there and you, you're there and you think, good land, yeah, what am I doing here? I'm out of place. When I was at Westminster Chapel, I get a phone call from 10 Downing Street and I'm told that uh, there's going to be a meeting in Royal Albert Hall and I've been chosen to bring a prayer, offer a prayer. And if I say yes, I could come to meet Margaret Thatcher, have 15 minutes with her. Well, I have time with Prime Minister Thatcher, and here's what was so funny. Waiting to meet her only to shake her hand was the Chief Justice of the United States, the Vice President of the United States, 
and the ambassador, St. James Court. And they just shook her hand, and I'd been with her. But then somebody says, we're going to take a photo with everybody. Well, I, at that point, I, I say, well, I'm not supposed to be here for that. So I go away. They say, Dr. Kendall, you, you want me? Yeah. I've got that photo at home with these important people. I felt like a fraud. Who am I? Who am I to be photographed with the prime minister? These, that's the way it's going to be in heaven. We look at each other and say, how'd you get here? But God did it. You can't take any credit for it. That's the way it is. And throughout eternity, you'll never get over it. Well, Abraham believed the promise, and that moment, righteousness was put to his credit, and it was a defining moment for him. Well, he was so discouraged in those days, and then he has this vision. You know, some people think if, if you get a vision, a real one, <laughs> you, you'll be a happy person. This wasn't going to make Abraham happy. A vision isn't enough just for God to say, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Abraham says, that's not good enough. I want to know what's going to happen. I'm old. Sarah's old. I don't have any children. Do I leave all this wealth to Eliezer? And that's when God moved in. And so it's not enough that you get a good word or vision. But then, over the next few years... There were other defining moments. And you see, what happened was, after a few years, Sarah still wasn't getting pregnant. And so, she says to Abraham, how about you sleeping with my maidservant? So he does, Hagar. And Hagar gets pregnant. And he thought, well, that's not what I thought it would be. I thought it would be Sarah. Turns out that was Abraham's way of showing he really believed the promise and he, he was trying to make good the promise. And then what a heartbreaker it was, having been attached to Ishmael, he had to say goodbye to him and acquiesce to what God had in mind. Sarah would conceive, Sarah would conceive and give birth to Isaac. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts higher than our thoughts. Well, what about that question? Has anybody ever asked you that before? Do you know for sure if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? Has anybody ever asked you that? Do you know it's the kindest question anybody can put to you? You may be offended how dare you talk to me like that? Well, let me ask you a question. Who will say this to you? Do you not realize the most important question you can ask? Where will you be 100 years from now? Peer pressure will mean nothing then. What people think will mean nothing then. Because when you stand before God, you'll stand alone. 
When you die, you'll die alone. So what did you say a while ago when I asked that question? Did it cross your mind? As soon as I asked, to say, because Jesus died for me? Or did you begin to think, well, I've done this, I've tried to do that? I wouldn't want to be in your shoes for anything in the world. But we can sort that out right now before I finish. I want to give you a prayer that you can pray. Now, if you have the right answer, had the right answer, you already said, because Jesus died for me, don't pray this prayer, not needed, you're already there. But for that person here who didn't have that answer, I don't want you to leave this church until you've prayed this prayer. And you don't need to say it out loud. You don't need to stand. You don't need to do anything more than to pray this prayer. Are you ready? Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. As best as I know how, I give you my life. That's it.